Welcome to Generative Leaders. If you've got a dream to change the world with purpose and want the lessons in life from a gloves off mentor, this is the episode for you. Today I'm in conversation with Liam Black. So Liam. Hello Julia. Fantastic to see you. It really is. I I associate you with uh, some really interesting times and interesting stuff that we did when you were at Centrica and how impressed and amazed I was at the way in which you were able to navigate all those fucked up (laughs) (laughs) company bureaucracies I have ever come across in my life. And we did some good stuff there with that that fund. I've learned so much from you um, in this space of generative leadership. I think that you were my first mentor in really understanding what it means to be an entrepreneur, to get clear about your purpose, to bring people together around a shared mission. And that's evolved ever since. And I think, you know, we're sort of, we've been on this mutual learning journey yeah, we together. certainly have. And, um, and now you have a book. I have a book. <laughs> I have a book. It's called How to Lead with Purpose, and it's great. <laughs> well, I, I, I stopped reading about four years ago. Right. And um, went entirely to Audible. Right. But I have to tell you, I sat down and I read your book. And, you know, there are a lot of leadership books that are really shit. <laughs> and then there's some that you read while you're having a shit. We <laughs> <laughs> should have put that on the book. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Having a shit, read, read this the book. book. Exactly, exactly. And then, you know, you get complaints from your family saying, get out of the bathroom, you've been in there. Well, that's Because it's so indeed. gripping. Well, the book I wanted to write was the sort of, in some ways, the anti-leadership book of the usual sort. Much shorter full of honesty and directness and just useful to people and no abstract theories. And also, I mean, again, physically, so it's short enough to read, but also physically small enough as a product to be able to put in your handbag or put in the coat of your pocket and read rather than a big tome that you may or may not move from the coffee table or the side of your bed. So I'm I'm delighted to hear that it has worked, although that image of you sitting there having a shit is going to stay with me for some time. (laughs) The whole book is designed for the audience that we're talking to. Um, You know, this sense of a generative leader, one that's leading with purpose, that's serving society, serving future generations. What? What do you think makes a generative leader? You know, how do they show up in the world? I think they show up with some clarity about why they want to do what they're doing. And I talk about in the book about, you know, the various things. Sometimes it's a personal experience of a social issue. Your your dad was made unemployed or you, your mum was homeless or you were and you got that. Or you have a religious drive. You know, you're a Christian and you think, and your belief is that, I will exercise my faith in the world by by trying to tackle homelessness uh, uh, or whatever. Uh, so I think that they have some, or we have some sort of good grasp of why it is we're doing what we're doing. Also, uh, are are aware that they are generative leaders, that there is something different about trying to to change the world, and not not only change the world, but the process of doing that is different um, as well. Um, they tend to be uh, often anxious, uh, prone to worrying. Um, I certainly am. They're also good learners. 
subsonants them. Um, some of them are maniacs and some of them are minders. I talk in the book about maniacs and minders that Stephen Lloyd once said to me, a lawyer, a friend of mine who died a few years ago, every business is a maniac and a minder. And one of the things that I'm trying to learn in my experience is not only does, could that be two separate people, but actually with ourselves as generative leaders, you have to deal with the internal maniac and minder. And when they are working together, you can achieve great things. It, for myself, when they start to get out of alignment, that's when I get into when I get into trouble. But they come in all shapes and sizes. You know, I've been lucky to mentor and work with men into their sixties as well as young women in their twenties and thirties, trying to make sense of how do you change this world um, for the better at the same time as not going mad and uh, being able to have a decent relationship and, and all of that as well. Yeah. So they, they, they kind of, you can, I kind of know them when I see them. And I also know them when they're bullshitting me and there's a lot of bullshit around this space, um, I, I, I fear. So yeah, so the book is written for people like that, not to get into any sort of you know abstract theories, but also really practical stuff. How do you get to your why? Why is it important to understand that? How does it change over time? I talk about, a bit about myself in the book. And if you'd asked me in my 20s when I was on the streets of London fighting the racists and, you know, going on demos and doing all the getting arrested at nuclear bases and so on, if you'd asked me, why are you doing this, Liam? Why haven't you got yourself a um, you know proper job with a nice pension like your mum wants you to? I'd be giving you an answer that was around left-wing politics Irish republicanism and Catholic liberation theology and the sort of Irish Catholics. Um, but looking back now, you know, my why and understanding of what I was doing is really different. You know, there was all of that for sure. And I fear I was a bit of a zealot at times. I was probably quite unpleasant, I think, when it, it, sometimes in my 20s. But looking back now, I have a lot of compassion for the young man who was, I think, just trying to be heard and and, and particularly heard by his absent father who had abandoned him when he was three. You know, so understanding what drives our generative leadership when we're 20, 30, 40, 50, and God help us, Julia, 60s, as I'm now in. And, and I think that, you know, the advice I give people in the book is if you want to stay healthy and you want to stay getting great results and having good uh, relationships and all the stuff that we want to live a full human life, you really do need to understand that and keep coming back to it. I have to say, you've been really helpful to me, it, you know, in the relationship that we've had, you know, uh, challenging, me, challenging me a few times on that one. I've actually forgotten, actually, I'm a bit gone over here a little bit and I need to, I need to come back. Yeah. So the whole book is trying to really be honest with people. It's told through the eyes of some of the people that I've had the privilege to to mentor, whether they're senior corporate people or sort of um, grassroots um, social entrepreneurs. And although they're very different, they do have a lot in common. So you mentioned that you've entered your sixtieth decade. Yes. So what's your why now? The, the next week is real in, interesting week for me. So I'm stepping down from the chair of the conduit in London, which I've done for the last two years as part of the turnaround team after the administration that happened in, uh, in, in London in 2020. And it's been really all absorbing. It's been yeah, very challenging. 
Uh, all of my buttons have been pushed. All of my anxiety is, you know, my anxiety generator doesn't need much fuel. It's a sort of solar powered thing and it can, you don't need any sun. And so all my buttons have been pushed there about opening a building, recruiting loads and loads of people, dealing with shells, all of that, all of the drama and everything that comes with that. But I've decided to step out of that because I want to, I really feel I'm in, going into a new phase um, of my life. And I, I think this is to, how do, how do I learn to be an older man, married to a woman that I've been married to for 40 odd years, grandfather of four, when I don't want to have lots of executive stuff because it's bloody tiring and I'm kind of, I'm kind of done with that. So what's the mix in my life of mentoring, board work, writing, friendship, family, uh, that is going to keep me healthy and uh, engaged for until I'm 70. And um, you find me at the beginning of that uh, journey, really. But I'm, I'm pretty clear that my sort of days of exec chair are done because it's just all-consuming. And uh, if you're all-consumed by that, then you don't have much left over for people like your wife. <laughs> and, uh, and that's important to me because I've been with this, woman since I was uh, since I was 19 so I'm still working on that but it's still overall it's the kind of mission that I had when I left Wavelength which is a company that I ran for 10 years and through which I found you um, Julia which is to only do interesting and useful stuff in the world with people I like and respect and I, I, I'm, I'm at the beginning of working out what that looks like now for my seventh decade Holy shit. But it, yeah. it's, it's a really interesting time, isn't it? Because, you know, a lot of um, men that I speak to who are entering their 60th, 70th decade, yeah. you know, they're kind of looking back and going, I started out at 20 wanting to change the world. Yeah. And have I, have I changed the world or have I just lived a good life and done yeah. some interesting stuff? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, so where are you kind of... Oh, I talk about that in the book. That's uh, that's a really interesting one. I mean, you know, you could, it, in my darker moments, you know, when my mind has really got me and uh, it's like, you know, you have done some good shit, Liam. You have. Some people tell you that you've, you know, you've changed their life. But honest to God, I'm a child of the 70s. Right? I was born in 1961. So I was like a teenager in the, in the, in the 70s and come from a... You know, real sort of working class Irish immigrant background. All the men in my family remain, were and remain, brickies, navvies, you know, manual workers. I uh, um, went to this you know, second-rate Christian brothers grammar school. They're all in prison now uh, for uh, for obvious reasons, and that put me on another sort of um, uh, another road. But the the social mobility that I have experienced. You know, going from where my my mother and my grandparents were to sitting with you in a podcast in your lovely garden in the home counties. I mean, Jesus, that is quite a shift. And it's less likely today than it was then. So social mobility, income inequality, the state of the climate, all of those things are a lot worse than they were when I was when I started out. So in my darker moments, my, where my mind has really got me, I said, well, actually, You've really you've had a good time, Liam. You've met some really interesting people. You've met Mahavad Yunus. You've met Julia Revold. You've been involved in some amazing uh, activities at the Conduit, and you work with Jamie, and you had your own business. Well, but actually, 
the world is shitter than it was when you started. So you've kind of wasted your time. That's on my dark days. On my other days, I say, well, actually, I'm not going to be able to change the world on my own, am I? And that's a stupid goal to give myself. All I can say is that I have all at all times tried, failed probably as much as I have tried to pursue this. You know, I've got a limited time on the on this planet. I want to leave it a bit better. And if I've left that better by some of the influence that I've had on people, whether that's I've been able to, you know, been involved in organizations that's created decent, honorable work for people who are overlooked. Um, or I've been able to get furniture into the homes of thousands of poor families that we did in Liverpool and so on, then that's good. And I think part of the generative uh, leader thing is being comfortable in the uh, contrast between what you really, really, really want to do and, and what actually you have done. And I think, again, I think generative leaders, it's certainly is true of me and I think a lot of other social entrepreneurs that I know, is you have these very high goals. You hold yourself to a punishing standard sometimes. And I, I, I am learning that that's just not good. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't deserve to be punished. Do you know what I mean? But if, yeah. if you well, know, maybe sit- that's the Catholic guilt speaking. Oh my God. Hallelujah. Ave, ave. There's a load of, yeah, there is a load of that. You know, um, you can take, what is it? Take the boy out of the church, but it's hard to take the church out of the boy. And there's no doubt about that. In writing this book and rereading my journal, particularly, which I did a lot in preparation for this uh, book, I just see it, you know. And um, again, if you'd asked me in my very arrogant 30s, you know, or said to me, if I'd met you, if you could cut, transport back to my 30s, obviously it was a long, you know, you were born a long time after that. Yeah, uh, I'd say, why? You said, Liam, well, you realise the, the way you are feeling and the behaviour you're doing is because you were brought up as a Catholic and wanted to be a Catholic priest and you have got this saving drama and this slight messiah. <laughs> this slight messiah. I would have gone, no, 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 no. I would have been very dismissive of that. But as I've got older, I'm much more comfortable in actually, actually, that formation, even though there was loads of it that I didn't like and I write about some of it in the book, actually, you know, the stuff about solidarity with others, remembering uh, uh, the poor, having a responsibility to leave things better, which I think is at the core of a lot of Catholic social teaching. It's actually a pretty good thing. And, uh, you know, sometimes I say to Maggie, uh, you know, because I wanted to be a priest. You know, I was only at college to play basketball, waiting to get into the seminary. And I met Maggie and off we went on another another road. And I you know, sometimes say to Maggie, if I hadn't been for you, I could be a cardinal now or you know, the Archbishop of Westminster, or, or, or even the first Pope of Irish background. She laughs derisively like you are right now, um, Julia. Well, it's not but, yeah, that I, I can't imagine you being a cardinal. Yes. Yeah. I can't imagine you not being with Maggie. Exactly. So I think for me, it's been a, it, it continues to be, on some days, a struggle, on other days, a kind of liberating journey to try and understand what it is that motivates me you know, what, uh, why I am who I am. Not get too caught up in that because I'm a believer in just like fucking do something, act, you know, uh, think, learn by doing, act, you know, uh, um, act. I, I don't overthink things. But yeah, there's no doubt about it that that formation and some of that guilt and some of that sense of obligation that I still have, there's no doubt about that, 
comes from my upbringing. And there's no doubt as well that, you know, that sort of leaning in and saving people, I think definitely has a Catholic edge to it. And also the fact that, you know, I didn't have a dad. I had a very abusive stepfather and felt I had to save, you know, look after my um, siblings. And that, if you look at what I've done in my life, I often find myself in that role of the kind of father figure, now the grandfather figure that people can rely on and all of that. There's no doubt that that's been part of it as well. And, you know, one of the things that I've always, always admired about you is is your ability to reflect yeah. and learn. And although there's the dogmatic side of you there is. that is, you know, just get it done, take the action, move on, don't procrastinate. I'm right. You're You're right. <laughs> I'm um, right and you're wrong and that's just the way it is. Uh, you know, but then you you so often you reflect on that and you learn from it. You yeah. Know, how much of a role do you think that plays in in generative leadership? Oh, huge. If you're not if you're not spending time to learn, then you're not. You know, you you are going to burn out. You are going to hit the wall, and you will just be useless eventually to people. I don't know why journaling is really important to me as a way of learning and reflecting on life. I don't know why I started it particularly. When I graduated, Maggie and I went off to Canada for two years as volunteer teachers. Um, And I decided that I would start it. I mean, the first line is something like, you know, it's the 30th of uh, June, 1982. I I start this journal. I don't know why I'm doing it. and I don't know where it will go. And I've now got boxes full of these journals. And I tend to turn to them. Uh, when in times of sort of anxiety or stress, and I now know deliberately if I am feeling out of it, then then sitting down and writing and reflecting really, really helps. And sometimes it's quite, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? So logical, like this happened today and what do you think? Sometimes it's like just a kind of stream of consciousness to get it out. Sometimes I'll write letters to myself. Sometimes I write it in the third person. You know, Liam met Julia today, and I find that an interesting uh, way of doing things. But no, learning is really, really important. And as I've got older and a bit more, less insecure um, and a bit more confident in my abilities and have a, a bit of wisdom and for the, that my experience has given me, I do try in the boards I'm involved in uh, help us learn as organizations as well as individually, but knowing particularly for in the chair or the CEO as a generative leader, you have to do that work because it it flows from you. And if I'm not doing it, the organization will end up not doing it. And then we're then when we're in real trouble. I also find the mentoring a really good way of learning as well. Because I have to be pre- really present to people who are often sharing with me, you know, stuff that they don't tell anybody else, not even their spouses. They they tell me. That's a you know, it's a sacred thing to have people in that. That's you wanting to be a cardinal again. Well, I said to uh, I, I was uh, I came I came home one day from uh, having spent a whole day with a then mentoring client who shared with me all sorts of things, and I was telling Maggie about it. Obviously, not the detail of it, and she said, "You've actually become, in some ways, become the priest you wanted to be because it's like you hear people's confessions and." And somehow you're giving them absolution by saying, that's okay, I did that and I fucked that up as well. Don't worry about it. Or, you know, your your penance is do this, this and this, you know. So I think there's, there is something in that. Um, 
but in the in mentoring other generative leaders, no matter where they are, whether they're you know chief of staff or Jagger Land Rover or they're you know a, a young social entrepreneur knocking their brains out trying to create a little social enterprise in a community, I learn a huge amount by the interaction that we have together. I'm sure you you must experience this in your work as well, absolutely, Julia. And that is one of the gifts of it. Um, and it's a terrible cliche, isn't it, that in mentoring and coaching, you get as much back as you give. It's 100% true. And I find, and it was only a few years ago when I thought, ah, actually, I am learning a lot through this. And sometimes it's learning that comes by being reminded, because don't tell your listeners this, Julia, will you? But one of the dirty little secrets of the mentor is sometimes you give advice that you don't take yourself enough. <laughs> don't tell anyone, though. Um, and so I've been in situations where uh, well, it was the one quite recently with what was going on at the conduit. I mean, it's been a really full-on um, role, leadership role at the conduit, and I've sort of come out of a bit of craziness there to go into a mentoring uh, situation with uh, one of my clients. And you know, I do the breathing and I try and get really, really, really present. And I found at the end of the two hours, I felt so much better. I don't know how they felt. Hopefully, they felt well. As well. I mean, they're paying me money, Julius. <laughs> I'm hoping they got what they wanted. I certainly did. So, um, so yeah, learning is really, really um, uh, important. But also formal learning I find difficult, as in going to conferences, going to seminars, because my tolerance level of bullshit is so low and my attention span listening to some of the crap that's out there uh, in impact investing, in all of those sorts of worlds, is so low. I do sabotage myself by going, I'm not going to go along to that because I just know it's going to be shit. So, <laughs> so I am looking for – so one of the things I am thinking in my 60s is should I do some formal learning? So maybe, I, you know, someone suggested an organization psychology degree or something. Um, so I'm thinking about that at the moment because, to be honest, I have been on broadcast for a long time. <laughs> I think it may be about time that uh, there was a little bit of uh, a nourishment and input going this way. I think it could sound like that, but it sounds like when actually you're really present with your clients, that actually the amount that you're receiving and learning is is far greater than what you're broadcasting. Yeah, one hundred percent. You know, and um, I'm always, you know, I've been around the block a few times now on on lots of things, but I always am still like someone did it this morning. You know, they got in touch and said, you know, as, have we come to the end of our contracted hours, Liam? And I said, let me have a look, my record keeping is pretty shit as well and uh i said oh actually yeah we've done uh 16 hours not 12 oh all right i want to renew i want to renew send me the invoice uh and whenever that happens there's a bit of me that goes wow what why are they doing why are they doing this um but i think part of that reaction must be that i get so much from you know their energy their honesty the, the you know the and very specific learning about their industry and what regenerative leadership looks like in manufacturing or finance or healthcare or you know climate technology. So that's it is it's 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 a real gift. And that and again, mentoring is something that uh, I can continue to do until I die. So and I, and, I, and I really hope to be able to do that. It'd be interesting at what point I get to the. You know that old geezer who's still flogging himself as a mentor, <laughs> saying the same old shit he's been saying since he was 50. But I might be a few years away from that, I hope. <laughs> yeah, one of the big things that you talk about in the book is 
two sides of the coin. One is the systemic challenges yeah. that the uh, the generative leader faces, yeah. um, and you know how to navigate that. And then the other component and dimension that you talk about is the sort of more important component of how they navigate their own mind. Yeah. And, you know, what gets in the way of that? I, I'm i not a great systemic thinker. I'm not the man to come to for grand you know, theories of system change. Um, I'm much more, so the, the, the mentoring and the advice I give to people is very rarely about understanding the bigger world of healthcare or climate change or stuff. They're, they're often smart enough to kind of grasp it. It's much more about the mind and it's much more about how they can be completely themselves and achieve what they want to inside this, the complexity of the system that they're trying to change. Things that get in the way, imposter syndrome. Has everybody got it? I don't know anyone that doesn't. But I think everybody has that. And the different ways it turns up, as well as the sort of, I'm a charlatan, I shouldn't be in this room, someone's going to tap me on the shoulder. The work for me, some of the other ways it turns up, is comparing myself with other people, you know, who I think are smarter, more successful, having a bigger impact in the world, making more money, better looking, you know, la, 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 la. I mean, that's a, that has been a big one uh, for me. And then the other one is not sufficiently celebrating wins and always focusing on the bad. You know, I give an example of you know, one of my clients who had a real breakthrough with a major uh, strategic uh, part of their company, which we had been working on for like three years with me advising him on his how to manage himself in the board meeting, how to deal with a CEO who was a bit of a psycho. And uh, we got we met up and I, I could see he just wanted to get straight into the issue that was on his mind. And I said to him, so anything happened since we last? But, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, we signed off that um, strategy. So I went, hang on, that strategy we've been working on for three years, it got signed off. Yeah, yeah. I actually chaired the final meeting, Liam. Yeah, and I nearly slapped him. And, and he's very much like that. If he had scored the winning goal in the World Cup, he would beat himself up for not scoring a hat trick. And again, it's that. I think it's part of the imposter syndrome. So I think dealing with that is really, really uh, important. Another thing, which is not a phrase that is mine, I think it was a Polish politician, this not my circus, not my monkeys. People being drawn into either seeing it or not seeing it into the dramas and the malevolence, sometimes again, conscious or subconscious of other people. You know, the number of times I will be uh, mentoring someone and I'll hear all about somebody else, you know, and then he did this, and then he did that, and then he said this to me. I go, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm not mentoring that person. I'm mentoring you. Um, and so helping people understand that actually all you have to say is, no, I'm not doing that shit anymore. That's all you have to do. It's not some big thing. It's just it's all in the, it's all in the mind, um, Julia. So I would say 75% of the mentoring I do is helping people see and deal with the shit their mind makes up, I would say. And I think one of the benefits of the mentor is someone outside who's not involved in the melodrama and the psychodramas of that particular company or uh, whatever it might be, who would, you know, with the eyes and ears can see and hear, actually, you are dancing to the tune of somebody else and you need to stop that. And that's regardless of industry. That can be private sector, 
In fact, I think it might even be worse in the social entrepreneur, nonprofit world where it's not just about making money and ego. It's about making money, ego, and saying that you're changing the world. So yeah, that understanding what motivates us, how we get knocked off our purpose, what that looks like in our behavior with other people and how we feel ourselves is absolutely critical. And, you know, I look back on, there's a chapter in the book on loneliness and mental health. Loneliness particularly, not something I think talked about enough in um, leadership. And I reread my journal from my 30s when I was first was a CEO in Liverpool. And Jesus, Julia, you know, I think I was properly depressed. I think I really, really was, you know, and I didn't have anyone around to go, Liam, Liam, come on, wake up. Look, 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 you're drinking too much. You're stressed. You're all of those. You're not present enough to your children. Um, I feel people feel guilty about not being around enough with my kids and worrying about other stuff when I should have been more present um, uh, to them. And I draw on all of that experience when I'm, I'm mentoring. And I think maybe that's some of the stuff that people like in my mentoring is I'm able to sort of say, well, I, I was also there. And, you know, what I didn't do was notice enough what was going on in my life. And that's why I probably was not as effective as I could have been. So it's all, it's all in the mind, Julia. It is all in the mind. And there's some really, really practical things to do. There are, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So when I came to your book launch, yeah. um, obviously- It was of, great, wasn't it, was, it? It was fabulous. And- Lots of your family were there. They were. And one of the best parts for me was seeing all of your children, who I've got to know over yeah. the course of yeah, our yeah, yeah. together. And, yeah. and one of the things they shared, which um, yeah, I thought I thought was really interesting, was that you've dedicated this book to your grandchildren. I have. And they were quite pissed off. My daughter was particularly pissed off. Um, yeah. you know, and 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 the sort of the rhetoric was you know, well, you love you love our grand grandchildren more than more than us. Yeah, I do. And you know, it was interesting <laughs> I don't because kids. I because I did say, you know, actually, I think he does, but it's only because he's learned how to fully love yeah, in think... the latter years and not be so involved in the self and yeah you know, all the melodrama and yeah. the bullshit of changing the world. Yeah, yeah. No, what, uh, 100%. No, Katie, my daughter, who's wonderful, She, she. we have a family uh, WhatsApp group called Family Bants, and uh, I was sort of bragging about the book, and she goes, oh, I see, it's dedicated to uh, Isabel, Mia, Finbar, and Cormac, and not your children. So I probably need to follow up with Katie and see, <laughs> is she really okay about this? But I think she's, you're right. I think you're absolutely right. That there is something, the purity of love you ha I have for my grandchildren is the most astonishing thing. And partly it's, it is you're old, older and you're not as driven in some ways um, as I was when I had my own kids. I had three small kids by the time I was 30. You know, I had my first son when I was 23. So I was sort of a kid myself. But with grandchildren, you you have all you're you're presented with these little bodies, these little human beings. You don't have any of the anxiety and the stuff you have as a parent, and so you can be one hundred percent present to them, and uh, that's such a gift. And that's that's probably why there's something in there about future generations and all of that as well. But 
yeah, I think there's a there's a, the only thing I could compare it to is the love you have when you remember when you first fell in love with someone and there was that sort of oh my God, I've got to be with them. They're absolutely lovely, and you can't keep your hands off them and all of that. That's for me is what it's like having grandchildren. It's like someone knocked on the door and said, "Are you Liam Black? Yeah, I've got this gift for you. If I didn't ask for anything, and then you're handed this amazing." amazing thing and maggie and i are very conscious about this you do kind of get a second chance to be the one of the brilliant adults in their life helping loving teaching and so on so yeah sorry kate but yeah <laughs> <laughs> but there is something there's something in that evolution isn't there and that you know it's it you know i i was i was talking to someone the other day about you know do you remember that moment when you realized that you loved the person that you love? Yeah. For me, it was a very, sort of very striking moment, you know, and I can, I can always visualize it and bring it, bring it to yeah. mind now. And that was then very quickly followed by, I'm going to marry this person. <laughs> uh, you know, e even though we didn't get married for five years yeah. later, it was just, it was just so right. It was just so. Yeah true so yeah, yeah, so yeah. obvious so you know clear do, do you find the same thing with purpose you know that it just it's just obvious and clear that's a brilliant question no no i have to work at it it's like i don't know a jewel i have to keep rubbing to find it um and i kind of know when i'm when i'm actually in flow and i'm really you know okay right this is what I was born to do. You yeah. know, I'm bloody good at this. I'm making a difference. I'm enabling other people. I, I know what the sort of I know what it feels like and looks like when it's when working. it's there. When it's there, but the purpose it's a, you know it's it, it, when for me when I start articulating it, it sounds a bit sort of banal and sort of I want to help people. I want to be of use in the world. Yeah, you know, I want to be present to those who need my support. Yeah. and and make their lives better. Uh, I've talked to someone recently who, you know, may end up mentoring him, and he's, like, completely driven by um, climate change. And I, I'm not. Yeah. I kind of get it. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> you know, I, I, I get it. But it's not – that's not what really – if anything, it's it's probably around unfairness and inequality. Those are the, that, that's what really gets me yeah. going. And if you look at the work that I've done, it's been – you know, the, the work with Jamie, the work, certainly the work in Liverpool, a lot of the stuff I tried to do with Wavelength has been about trying to enable those who, you know, through misfortune or through just the way up we have conspired to organise our society, are locked out. Yeah. And unlocking that a little bit, that's, that will probably be, if I have to say, that is what my mission um, has been. But sometimes I forget that and I lose sight of it and I need to, to come back to it. And again, that is one of the gifts of mentoring. In the asking of you, what, well, what's your purpose and mission in life, Julia? Let's work on that. You know, there's something in my brain that's beginning to say, well, what about you, Liam? Yeah. And let's get back to that. And I think to back to your other question, Julia, about my 60s, I think it's, you know, one way of articulating that is, well, what is now? How does that purpose get lived out in, a, um, uh, in my 60s with all the usual stuff of you know i'm not i don't play golf and i'm not a gardener and you know if i'm not doing something you know this 40 year 50 year marriage might come to an end because 
<laughs> Might be with Maggie. Careful what you wish for, love. I'm home today. Aren't you going to London? No, I'm home again because, you know, so. But it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's, there's the content aspects of purpose. Yeah. And there's kind of like what you do. Yeah. And there's being able to articulate that. Yeah. But then there's the feeling of knowing when you're in it. Yeah. Which you can't prescribe, describe in advance, you know, because when you're in it, you know it, and it's got this energy and this flow and yes. this, this sort of life wanting to move it forward yeah. rather than you driving it and pushing it forward. Yeah, it's no, 100%, 100%. And that, 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 that sort of, what's the word, is it dichotomy or whatever it is of deliberate thinking about it, dealing with your why, trying to deal with your mind, all of those sorts of things, and serendipity. You know, I, I don't know how those two things work. And I, you know, some people say you create your own luck and all of that. And I, there is a bit of that. But also, again, look at my career. And you can read about it in my book, ladies and gentlemen. But you look at it and you go, that, okay, there is a thread through that, no doubt about it. But it is still pretty, you know, I, I used to be part of a group in Liverpool, which was very intimidating for me when I first went to it. It was a Benedictine monk. A couple of Jesuits, I think a Dominican, and you know, like, and it was called um, the Grasshoppers, and it was run by a man, a, a, a great man, he's, he's dead now, called Tom Cullinan, who was a, um, a Benedictine monk and opted out of all of that private school stuff and built a little retreat centre out of recycled wood and reclaimed stuff on the ends of uh, on the outskirts of Liverpool. One of his scathing critics said, "You have, you know, to live that simply and poorly, you have to be very rich." But you know. That was fun, but fine. So he created this thing, and there was a group that met every month for the um, grasshoppers, and I was invited to join it. I was like 24, and here I was with all his wife that were old men at the time. They were probably 40 or something. And they were called the grasshoppers because they, they were saying that some people's lives, that they look behind them, and they can see this thread through it like a snail. And there are others, you look back and go, well, I was over there, and then I was over there. So it's a bit like a grasshopper. So I'm not quite sure I'm a sort of... I'm like a if a snail bred with a grasshopper. <laughs> I, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit like that. But I'm also, I, another thing about me, I don't look back very much. If I leave an organization, I leave, I, I leave it. And partly that's pragmatic. I, just, and I want whoever succeeds me to do it. But also there is a bit of me that what's past is, is gone. Yeah. And I'll, I'll learn from that. And I, I trust life enough now, I guess, that, you know, if I approach it open enough and clear enough in my head, interesting things will will emerge. And then your anxiety kicks in. And then you go, shit, shit, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Oh my God. So I, how do you deal with that? How do you... you know, tell, how do I deal with anxiety? Yeah. I deal with anxiety, first of all, by uh, acknowledging it in a way that when I was a younger man, I just wouldn't, because I would have thought, I, I definitely thought, acknowledging that is a weakness. You know, it's like admitting I'm scared because I'm not scared, I'm the tough Irish working class boy who can take the world on. So partly it's it will definitely just acknowledging, just going, do you know what? I'm really worried about this. And it's only relatively recently in my career that I would say things like that at board meetings. You know, like, I'm really worried about, I'm really anxious about this, rather than pretending that everything and I and I have learned that if the if you are sitting at the head of the board table or the the exec, saying that out loud it's not only good for yourself, it's good for everyone around you. As there's the collective relaxing. There's a collective, oh, my God, it's not just me. You know, it's not just me. And, you know, one of the senior people in the company 
has actually said it out loud, and that gives people permission. So it's it's acknowledging it and uh, talking about it. And I deal with it in a couple of ways. I do a lot of walking. I have a practice that um, if I've got a really, you know, what I think is going to be a challenging board meeting or so- something coming up, I will always walk for about half an hour at least before I get there. And with the conduit, for example, where there's been quite a lot of stressful uh, stuff, I will I will decide, right, I've got a meeting at 11 o'clock. I'm well prepared for it. So I think part of dealing with anxiety is making sure you're, you're, you're well prepared. Uh, but I will time, I'll look at the times of trains and give myself enough time to be able to walk from Marlebone to Covent Garden very deliberately, breathing, my hand on my chest to get back to myself and try and as authentically as possible, get into role, get into the Liam that I think when I'm at my best, which is calm, funny, doesn't kick off, you know, it's directive without being a dickhead. Do you know what I mean? And then walk into the room. And sometimes you're right to be anxious because actually some of this shit is pretty, if people's livelihoods are at stake and reputations and investors' money, you need to be cognizant of that. But I deal with it by acknowledging it, saying it out loud, physically dealing with it. Journaling really, really helps me. Um, And cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking. I don't do journaling. Yes. And humour. Humour. Yes. Humour. 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 But it sounds like, you know, what you're saying is the key to anxiety is to realise that these are you generating thoughts about stuff happening in the future. Yeah. So acknowledging that that's happening, getting back to the present moment in whatever way works for you, and knowing that you've got the strengths and everything within yourself to be able to handle whatever comes. That's much better put than my rambling just then. Thank you very much for clearing that up, Julia. I I, I will look forward to the recording. No, and I think, again, some of it does come with being a bit older, Yes, worrying about the future is a bit bloody stupid because who knows? You know, it can go it can go lots of lots of different ways. Um, uh, so I tend to I'm much better at recognizing the moods I get into. You are you are in your messiah mode now, Liam, and you know, pack it in. You're not the messiah. You're a you know a bald old grandfather. Um, or I get into my Stalin mode, which is I'm going to fucking go in there and sort this out, which is always doesn't work. Might work for ten minutes, but you know, you know, what happened to Stalin? Ended up in a pool of his own piss, and no one would go near him, so he died. So I think with practice and with a bit of you know a bit of experience, I have got better at realizing when the generative mindset has become a a disabling yeah. mindset, and then being able to kind of uh, step back from that and get back into the present moment and be much more myself, which I know is going to be of use to me and my mental health and my happiness and to the people around me who look to me for leadership. Yeah, very profound. Yes. As they say, you could walk through Liam's thoughts and not get your ankles wet. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Just> that deep. <laughs> Should we have the shameless plug for the book bit? Yeah, let's do the book bit. Oh uh, Well, you get the book. On um, uh, Waterstones, online, uh, Amazon, bookstore.org. Just Google it and a, and a platform will uh, come up. Or you can get it from the publisher, 
which is Practical Inspiration Publishing. Um, and you can get it on any of those uh, uh, platforms. And I, I hope that the, the thing that has been so great about the feedback on the book is, is that people just say, I found it really useful. Because I think inspiration only gets you so far. So there aren't a lot of, you know, I have been to the mountaintop stuff in that you get a lot of leadership books. I want it to be people to read it and put it down and go, that was really useful. There's two or three things in there that I'm now going to do differently or try and do better because Liam has reminded me these are important. Yeah, great. And I love how after every chapter, you've put in a series of questions to have people reflect have them learn, yeah. have them, you know, go inside and see what's there. Yeah, again, uh, you know, the reason I, don't, I didn't want this book just to be a nice read, you know, people reading go, oh, that's really nice. I wanted um, people to find it useful and find it useful by trying to answer some of the questions that are in there. And some are really straightforward, like, how much shit are you prepared to take? <laughs> and so it might be a bit more deep. And and cut out your sticker for not my circus, not my money. Yes, there is a, um, If we, if I actually said to the publisher, that takes a lot of cash. You have to be J.K. Rowling or J.B. Oliver to, for a publisher to spend that kind of money. But it would have been great if we actually could have had that as a sticker that yeah, people yeah, could, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. could put up. But there are some cartoons in there as well uh, that I've done with um, Hunt Emerson. So I hope people will find it useful that they will get a laugh from it and there'll be enough aha moments this guy has said some stuff here that resonates with me and it'll yeah, be, yeah. have been worth the writing and i you know i also love the fact that it's illustrated with your own story but yeah. then there's also the humility of of other stories in there where things you know it's not full of lots of positive stories no, there's lots of contrary. you know I fucked up here, yeah. this happened, how do I learn from it? How do I share yeah. my experience so that other people don't have to go through the same? I, I think that it's uh, a quote Jeffrey Pfeffer in the book there. And, you know, he wrote a book called Leadership BS, which when I was at Wavelet, I bought for everyone who worked for the company because we were a leadership development training kind of thing. And he says that this obsession of trying to learn from best in class actually doesn't get you that far. Because often when you do try and learn from best in class, you're not getting the full picture. Whereas learning from people being honest about where they have fucked it up, you may learn more from that and the humility that comes with that rather than, you know, tell a story of Enron in there. You know, I, God, I went to Enron the year it actually, 12 months before they all got caught out and um, sent to jail. And they were the most innovative company in America for six years in a row. They were lauded, people were pouring money at them, et cetera, et cetera. And it was all bullshit and fell apart and ruined lots of people and so on. So yeah, it's it's not full of I, you know, I have I sold homelessness, let me tell you how I did it. It's about people saying, I went into one guy in there, you know, I went into took over a homelessness charity and I thought that I would be solving coming up with innovative solutions to deal with rough sleeping in London. And how am I spending my time dealing with that wanker who runs our retail? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. So the book is How to Lead with Purpose. It is. Lessons in Life and Work from the Gloves Off Mentor, Liam Black. That's me. And uh, buy it. If you're listening to this and you have heard something that's really helpful, then buy the book. Please do. And thank you, thanks so much for, for having me to talk.
You're, Always a pleasure. You're very welcome. Liam, if people want to get in touch with you and, and have some of your gloves of mentoring because they've got a bit more money to spend than the book, how do they get hold of you? <laughs> yeah. uh, they can get hold of me on LinkedIn uh, or they can get hold of me at liam at uk. I love that conversation with Liam. And if you found it helpful and think someone else would, then please go ahead and share this episode. You can do that at generativeleaders.co or any other place you find podcasts. My key takeaways from that conversation is what an amazing bullshit detector Liam has developed after all these years. And most of all, he's developed that with himself See, through seeing through his own bullshit and asking himself the difficult questions. That ability to self-reflect, that ability to learn, to ask the difficult questions. I've witnessed Liam being in many situations where he's bristled people up the wrong way. But isn't it, listener, the difficult questions that take us farther than anything else? It makes us break through areas of thinking. It takes us beyond what we currently know. The other area that I was really glad that we touched on, because Liam's said it to me on many occasions, the only thing that really is going to get in your own way is yourself. And learning to ground yourself and get out of the shoulda, woulda, coulda, anxious, backward focusing thinking is what we could all do with a dose of from time to time. Grounding ourselves in the present moment and coming back to what we know to be true and acting from that space seems to help us more than we could ever know. The third area that really struck me in the conversation today is that when you're really living your purpose, it's a feeling. And you know that feeling when you're in it. But quite often we can get lost and move away from that feeling. And so it can then feel hard and challenging and difficult to get back to our purpose. And so it comes back to really asking those questions to see your own thinking. And that's where a mentor can come in really handy to help you explore your own thinking when you can't do it for yourself. What did you take away from this conversation? And what would you share with others? Thanks for listening and looking forward to seeing you on the next episode of Generative Leaders. Generative Leaders.